we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods, located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange, sometimes monsters, UFOs, hauntings, or even just strange or fringe political beliefs. And that is the direction we are going with this particular episode, American Militia number three. Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. With me to talk about this rather serious subject is Mr. Ali Keane. Ali, welcome back to the show. Uh, Glad to be here. It's been a while, Ali. Um, We had, obviously, two previous American militia episodes, and that was some months ago. People have actually been asking about this. The reason this episode has been so long, I think, coming is that well, COVID happened and dealing with this really serious subject. I just, I don't know about you, but I just kind of couldn't face it for a little while. Uh, straight up, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say a massive thanks to you because you have done a lot of the reading for this one and you have had to read a lot of really horrible stuff for this one indeed. So we previously covered, just as, as a quick recap, we previously covered in American Militia Number 1, we talked about the Siege of Ruby Ridge, that's the Weaver family in North Idaho. In uh, American Militia Episode 2, we talked about the famous Waco Siege. So both of those were in events that were very influential in the world of the U.S. militia movement. And this episode, we're going to talk about, of course, the Oklahoma City bombing. So very quickly, I'm just going to do shout outs and contacts. So on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. If you want to reach out on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Facebook or Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. There is a Facebook, but I rarely use it and it's kind of rotting. So it's there if you want to go and look for it, but there's not too much happening with it. Now, quick shout out to one of our most recent patrons over on Patreon. So big thanks and hello and another thanks to Cindy over in Virginia. Really exciting to have listeners from there. So Cindy just mentions that she enjoyed the King Kong episode and the Jurassic Park episode. I'm glad you did, Cindy, because they were exhausting. (laughs) They're both mega long episodes, especially the JP one. And I did them by myself and... Um, they both have a lot of sort of literary criticism and history and colonial stuff in them. And I was really exhausted doing all of that off the dome. And uh, she mentions she has a background in literary criticism and biology and appreciates the content. So it's super nice that we have people with those kind of backgrounds and expertise listening. That uh, really means a lot to us. So huge thanks to Cindy. If you yourself would like to sort us out or help us out on Patreon, it is patreon.com forward slash wide Atlantic weird. And there are three tiers you can support us at. Uh, everybody who supports at any tier gets free bonus episode, or, or rather an extra bonus episode, I should say, on a Wednesday. And just so you know what that's about, last week, the bonus episode was myself and the wonderful Chris Spooky Joyce talking about UFOs and Victorian scareships and me uh, booing at Winston Churchill after having a beer which is, I can't remember why, but that definitely happens. <laughs> Next week uh, is going to be hopefully a follow-up or an addition to this episode. Ali and myself are going to be talking about kind of like the wider world of white supremacy militia that was going around in the 90s and the 80s. We're going to talk about a group called The Order, and we're going to talk about 
the Turner Diaries, which is kind of like the Bible of white supremacy from this time. Yeah, so yeah. serious stuff, but very, very interesting stuff. And uh, sadly, still relevant today uh, is, is how I think about it. Just a few other shout outs. One to Gabriel, listening from Kilkenny, asks if we would consider doing an episode about the Black Shuck, which is a mostly like a UK based uh, ghost story about like the black dog ghosts. You might have heard of those, Ali. Um, is that kind of like the stuff to do with the Moors, the Hound yeah, of the Moors? Yeah, Arthur like like you're probably thinking of Arthur Conan Doyle and, and Sherlock Holmes and the, the Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, I was on the UK Wildlife Podcast with my friend Neil recently for their Halloween episode. And we I talked a little bit about Black Shock, so you can check that out if you want to hear it. It may make its way onto our main show at some point. I don't know if I've exhausted everything I have to say about it or not. Another shout out to Tony in Dublin and Jacob in Oakland, both of whom asked about... Hey man, where's American Militia episode three? And uh, like I said, it, it's a tough subject. Didn't really feel like going near it, um, you know, so early on during COVID, everything. It just felt like the whole world was dealing with so much. But I'll just read out. Jacob said, wanted to ask if the third American Militia episode is out. Couldn't find it on Spotify. Really enjoyed the other two. As someone who's researched a lot about Waco and the like, it was really great to hear foreign perspectives on the issues. Feel like you guys get right to the point about how insane Americans are for guns. <laughs> Which leads into Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> yeah, it gets us there. I'll, I'll just, I, I am glad that, I mean, I, I don't like to be telling people how to live their life, but I'm still glad that we don't have a gun culture in quite the same way. Yeah, I mean, look, McVeigh almost worshipped those guns, like, yeah. And they, like does... gun culture is quite celebrated over there. Like, uh, I'm not saying everyone uh, supports no. gun America, it's but a they're, they're issue. A and I culture. do think I do think most owners are presumably, and I've met them. I you know I, I knew lots of responsible gun owners, and uh, it's, it's always the the few spoiling it for everybody. But at the same time, if if you live in a place where they're just people, most people aren't interested or don't have them, then you don't even have to have those ethical decisions. It's not. It's just a non-starter. Well, before we get to the serious stuff, we have to talk about the really serious stuff, which is, of course, our beverages for the evening. Uh, Ali, what are you partaking of? Uh, I'm washing down a filthy Budvar. Budvar is good, man. Don't trash Budvar. I know I, I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> uh, I, I drank a lot of it in Prague, and um, I'm, I'm glad there's a shop around, you should. Uh, around the corner. Sorry? Budvar, is, is Budvar really, like, there's this mythology that it was the original recipe for Budweiser? And oh, you, don't you ever know. heard that? Oh, I always heard that. I don't know if it's true. Could be an urban legend. I mean, if that's the case, then they really f f messed it up with Budweiser. <laughs> yeah, Budweiser is way better. Yeah, it's much, it's much nicer. I'm drinking. I went as Murica as I possibly could. So I have a can of native IPA, uh, which has a big, you know, US flag at the front and a bison which is the proper name for a buffalo if you're in America, if you're a, if you're a biologist. And it's 5.5%. It's and it comes well, in a well, big... just call it the militia malts. Comes in a, in a great can, brilliant can, big can, biggest, biggest can I've ever seen. Guy who sold it to me in the shop said he'd never seen a can like it. I have all the best cans. So yeah, native, native IPA, it's good stuff. Yeah. Big, huge American flag in it. We should deliver our warning that... Of course, this episode is dealing with some heavy stuff. The, we're talking about a mass bombing. We're talking about these kind of super racist uh, and white supremacist worldviews. 
if occasionally we seem to be making light of things, I promise you it's only because we're trying to come up with a way to talk about this that doesn't do our own heads in. Poor Ali has had to read a lot of <laughs> a lot of grim material for this. We, Of course, we don't mean to make little of anyone suffering or anything like that. Um, and I think I think it should be clear from our attitudes that uh, yeah yeah I think I think this I is think bad we, stuff. <laughs> I've got a couple of excerpt uh, excerpts from the book. Um, they're relevant, um, so maybe uh, maybe healthy to warn people. You know, if they're listening to excerpt from this nonsense, I may read out later on. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not my views. It's the views of a long since dead man, uh, but he was a, a very evil man. Uh, so. Pierce. To set the scene slightly, um, in our previous episodes, we talked about a couple of events that Ruby Ridge, which was a siege of a family in the, in the north of Idaho, and Waco, Texas, which is a, a compound in which has a kind of religious sect or cult hold up inside it. On both occasions, I think it's fair to say that, that the federal powers overreached or kind of made a bit of a mess up of it. A lot of people died, um, particularly in, in Waco. And both of these happenings we're coming along at a time when there was a movement building in America of people who were suspicious of their federal government and believed that the feds were out to get them. And it was kind of the birth of this type of particular type of conspiracy culture. And the guy we're going to talk about today, Timothy McVeigh, I'm interested in exploring not just what he did, but also what he believed and how much he was influenced by this sort of budding militia movement. So let's let's do a quick overview for someone who's never heard. Before we get into the details, Ali, like who was this guy and what did he do? Uh, right, well, uh, yeah, uh, well, kind of Cliff Notes version is like McVeigh was, um, it came from a normal background, like no, nothing there to, you know, that would have just completely consumed the guy to, to run away and bomb building. But like he was an ex- um, uh, he was a war veteran. He was in the Gulf War, and uh, he was a like a marksman and a sergeant and all that. But by the time he got discharged from the army, um, and when he came back, he became more and more disillusioned with the federal government. He hated them, and that hatred kind of grew more and more after we talked about it the other day. The Brady Bill had been passed. Yes, and like he became fixated on guns from a young age, and his grandfather. Now the Brady Bill is that the, was that the the Clinton era one about. No, Clinton no, this era. was something else. No, it's Clinton era. Is that the one that like kind of controlled how how many people could own automatic weapons? Is that the one? There, I've I've got it here actually. I am um, because uh, this stuff comes yeah, up a lot a when you read about the the militia guys. Yeah, so that the obviously the taking our guns thing is huge. Well, the the, the Brady Bill ban was so the manufacturer certain semi-auto rifles and handguns with detachable okay. magazines and a combination of two features such as flash suppressors pistol grips, grenade launchers, and bayonet mounts were now illegal. I didn't think they were still selling them, but there you go. Um, and so like when in school, McVeigh like became like just obsessed with guns, obsessed. And then he found the Turner Diaries and in it, at this, in, this is written in 78, in it, the, the whole book kicks off with a thing called the Cohen Act, which is where the federal government come in and take the guns away. So the, this, this is, the Turner Diaries is a fictional kind mm. of self-published book, isn't it? That's passed around within the, the sort of bur burgeoning militia slash white supremacist movement. Uh, yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. Is it it's not Butler, it's Pierce, isn't it? William Pierce. Yeah, William yeah. Pierce. Is he American Nazi party? Was he actually? And he was in the American Nazi party. And then when they split, um, he, he created, set up the National Alliance, which still, I think might still be going today. So I called it earlier the, the, the sort of like the Bible of 
white supremacy at this time. What, what was in the book that maybe McVeigh might have been influenced by? It was just, it literally was just the guns. Like we'll get into it later about like there's specific bits that his life almost like took on elements of that book, maybe subconsciously, maybe by accident, maybe consciously, I don't, I, you know, uh, but essentially he roams around the gun shows becoming kind of more and more radicalized against the federal government. And in the end, he decides after, after Waco, he decides I'm going to make a statement and there has to be a body count. And so the, um, the, the Murrah building in Oklahoma city was, was bombed. And well, he got the death sentence for that. That's, That's the right. overview of McVeigh. And the, the, there was a large body count for that. This was one of the. Yeah. 168. One, one of the most, one of the largest, I mean, they didn't even have the phrase domestic terrorism. I, I, I believe, I don't think that was even, I mean, what's really interesting about the order and sort of the eighties, nineties and all, all of these times that like the feds mess up these, these encounters, it's because they're jittery. They really do recognize that there's a growing problem within their own country, a homegrown terrorist sort of, a, even though they didn't have that language as far as I know, but they're, they're watching them and they're like, they, I mean, they, the Weavers were killed because they thought that Randy Weaver was a, was a white supremacist because he was associating with uh, the Aryan nations guys, and right? the Aryan nations. Yeah. So yeah. like the feds were aware of this as, as a growing problem. And then the order were a, an eight, it was in the eighties, wasn't it? They were a group driving around stealing money uh, from trucks. Yeah. And, yeah and the name, they call themselves the order after the order in the Turner diaries. And the MO of the Turner Diaries um, order or organization was that they did uh, to get money at the start because they had no, they, this is before they started counterfeiting um, money. They used to go and uh, do armed robberies on uh, like shops owned by uh, Jewish people or like people who were, they deem race traders or easy targets. Yeah. And the, the order is just like they did this. Yeah. And, and, I, like so, not an original so they, thought in their head. Well, they took this fictional book because the the Turner Diaries is basically uh, like a wish fulfillment fantasy for crazy racists, where like the, the the there's a race war, the whites rise up against the everybody else in the country, and do the, is there is there like an anti-Semitic thing? Is it is it the case that like the, the evil Jews control everything and have to be so the, it's like a guerrilla war against the federal government. And the like, the quote unquote good guys in the book who are the racists. Well, I found are called yeah, the it's like, There's an excerpt from it, right, where they say like, where where Earl Turner, the protagonist, that like the you know the guy who writes his diaries, um, he's saying like, oh, we were lied to, and you know the you know the Jewish people made us go over there and and you know kill the, the Germans all in a lie. And what he, the specific bit is like, what's happening now is reminiscent of the media campaign against Hitler and the Germans back in the forties stories about Hitler flying into rages and chewing carpets, phony German plans for the invasion of America, babies been skinned alive to make lampshades and then boiled down into soap, girls kidnapped and sent to Nazi stud farms. The Jews convinced the American people that those stories were true and the result was World War II, with millions of the best of our race butchered by us and all of the Eastern and Central Europe turned into a huge communist prison camp. Goodness, is that directly from the Turner Diaries? Yeah. Because dude, that, that, could be, that could be Alex Jones, like right there, there's no difference. You know, that, never like, that is, that is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Like, yeah. But it's nonsense that has a history and a precedent. You know, this goes back to the, 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 
protocols of the Priory of Zion. The, that the, it's basically a czarist Russia, 19th century forgery. It's, it's this report. That, oh, somebody found this report of you know, the, the leaders of the Jewish conspiracy and they meet in a Prague cemetery and they, they outlay their, outline their plans for taking over the world. And it's all, that, it's all that sort of thing. It's all control the media and make sure everyone thinks that we're good guys and the other guys are bad guys. And if anyone calls you out, then tell them they're racist or anti-Semitic. You know, it's pure Alex Jones and it hasn't changed a bit. No, I mean, yeah, literally this could be Infowars, like just typed up. You know, yeah. when, when you said there that they're complaining, oh, the Jewish people control everything and they, they send us abroad for these illegitimate wars. Yeah. That's, that's really complicated and sticky for me. Donald talks about this a lot when he's on this show, my brother, who's a political scientist, and he, he's very knowledgeable about the history of this idea that whenever today conspiracy theorists are railing against what they call globalism, which mm-hmm. is, a, you know, Alex Jones, oh, the globalists, oh, they, turn, they want to turn the frogs gay and all that, all, all that good stuff. Um, so, that, like, I find this really interesting because... <clears throat> He rightly points out that globalism is like a, a, a dog whistle for Jewish people, basically. Or whenever they're complaining about, you know, the, the bankers who control everything or the, the Rothschilds right. or whatever, that's all like, they mean like a secret Jewish conspiracy. That's really what they mean. And For what though? To control everything, to control the world, you know. So, I mean, think about David Icke. People, a lot of people reckon that when he's talking about the lizard people, He's talking about the Jewish people, is he? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not entirely in on that. I think David Icke is, is a problematic. I personally don't think he's necessarily an anti-Semite. He, he probably traffics with them, and he's using some words that maybe play with them. Uh, it's very complicated. There's a lot of good stuff about this in the work of John Ronson, who's, who wrote, he's written loads of great books, but he has a book called Them, um, which is a lot, a lot uh, written just at the time when this stuff is really getting interesting mm-hmm. and prob- problematic. It's I think the book is most of the stuff in the book is happening around 99, 2000. And he meets a, a young Alex Jones and he meets um, a young uh, David Icke. And he's trying to decide who, you know, are the, the because he, there's a chapter where David Icke goes to speak at a bookshop, promote his local book in Toronto or Canada, and he gets shoved out by these groups saying, no, you're an anti-Semite, you know? And basically John Ronson is hanging around with him trying to find out like, when this guy says the world is controlled by, you know, nine foot lizards, does he really mean lizards? Or is this code for something? And he's, you know what John Ronson, he's a bit like Louis Thoreau. He's very earnest. He always wants to give these guys a chance to make their case. So he's just like, well, uh, you know, David, when you say lizard people, do you really mean lizard <laughs> people? <laughs> so um, yeah, it's good. Do you, do you reckon though, like they're only against certain aspects of globalism? That's a great they're question. Talking about, they're talking about governments extending the hand over the bench, you know, to another country and making alliances there. Alex Jones sells like vitamins <laughs> and David Icke writes books yeah. and through, you know, globalist, capitalist, culture that we are in you know um he gets to sell his vid if you go to alex jones website if it's still up now you know it, it i i i bet it won't say us only i bet that i could order those vitamins over here in the uk and they will come and there's your fucking globalism <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they, you know, they absolutely I, I don't know it's very complicated for me because i'm a i'm an environmentalist you know and i have problems with i have genuine problems with 
the way in which everything is connected now and in terms of how we expect travel to be so fast and so efficient and we expect to be able to get products from anywhere in the world. You know, yeah, it yeah. comes with a price. It comes with the price of, of carbon being, footprint. Yeah, carbon yeah. footprint, for example. That's just one, one very one important element of it. And also, then there's the version of... So, so those are real globalistic things, but then there's this like fictional version of globalism that the conspiracy theorists believe in. Where which the Jews is, are controlling the world or something. Yeah, like. which, which I, I really think a lot of it is nativism and populism and, you know... It get, is populism. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, populism. Get, get the immigrants out. You know, if somebody really want, really has a genuine economic kind of case to make and they're being sensible about it, I would hear them out. But I'm reading, I'm one of these people now reading all the books about like, why do people vote for Trump? You know, I'm reading, I read the J.D. Vance book. I'm reading Katrina Perry's book. I actually got it from a bookshop in Cork and all the, all the booksellers said to me, oh, these were hugely popular in 2016. And I said, I couldn't read them at the time. I couldn't, I want, you know, I, I wasn't ready. But like, I'm ready now. I'm interested. I want to I wanna know how this phenomenon works. And if somebody was to say, you know, I support this crazy right-wing populism for sensible economic reasons, I will sit down and listen. I want to know. I'm not saying I, I agree, but I'm, I could sympathize in, in theory. There is... But I just, they're not convincing me that a lot of this isn't race-based. I just... Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to get past that. I really think a lot of this stuff is... I don't like the fact that my society around me is changing. It makes me feel powerless. It makes me feel helpless. And I'm, I'm what was Timothy McVeigh like? Is that where is that where his? No. So like, they 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 didn't make a big deal of the fact that he worshipped the Turner Diaries, and when he went around to the gun shows, um, he used to sell copies of them. That's how he made a bit of scratch, uh, you know, um, a couple of bucks. Um, and then when you read it, and William Pierce was challenged on, uh, you know, uh, on the Turner Diaries uh, by C- CBS 60 Minutes. Someone did an interview with him from there. They said, you know, they keep bringing up the racist, um, all the racism in the book, and there is plenty of it. Um, I mean, that's, that's its raison d'etre. Like, it is, <laughs> it is a it book is. about it, a racist takeover of the US for racist reasons so they can make a pure white state. Yeah, and w- look, William Pierce, wasn't deni- William Pierce wasn't denying this. Like, he... Um, he was one of these kind of racialists, like um, uh, those people in uh, Elohim City. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but essentially they're um, like a compound of, they don't consider themselves white supremacists, but they literally say in this, like there's a video on YouTube, like, oh, you know, well, the white man and, you know, the European whites, they came from these tribes, these 10 tribes in, in the oh. Bible. And then, and then, um, the color people came from these kind of lesser known tribes, the like lesser British tribes. Israelist kind of stuff, almost mm-hmm. except American. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. I, I think it's... that might actually be a descendant of the, the British Israelite movement. We had an episode about that before where we talked about the Hill of Tara and the, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> which yeah. is when like in the 19th century, a bunch of crazy British Israelist people went to dig up the, the, the Hill of Tara in Ireland because they had come to believe that, through some convoluted reading of both the Bible and Celtic mythology, that that's where the the Ark of the Covenant was. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty stupid. Yeah, it was. It was pretty out there. And and you know what, Ali? That's one of the few things I I've covered where I got pushback from like believers online. Seriously? Some, yeah, some guy who's a co- contemporary modern day. Um, 
British uh, Israelite guy found that episode and like put some angry comments on it. And like he, you know, in fairness to him, he laid out the whole like biblical reasoning that they have going on, which was crazy, but rather intense. A bit like a Rudy Giuliani lawsuit, you know? <laughs> well, when I was reading up about um, uh, McVeigh during the week here, uh, I started reading, unfortunately, the YouTube comments under some of the videos. Oh, goodness. And there are believers out there that McVeigh didn't die. That no way. Yeah. I've never heard of this. Mm-hmm. So what, and what? the Oklahoma City bombing was backed by, the, ba- ba- backed by the US government. Clinton oh, knew about course. it. Yeah, he said it did not, not, not to stop it. Um, uh, because they wanted to bring in certain laws and they knew like a body count was the way to do that. So McVeigh was the government patsy and he never actually died on the table. <laughs> so where is he? Is he hidden away somewhere? I, I don't know. So he, to I, them, is he a baddie? Is he like working with the government to fake this? Uh, uh, s- no, certain believers... Pat- or is he a patsy? A pat- is he like he's Lee Harvey Oswald, you know? Yeah, he's a patsy. Okay, so he was a true believer, true patriot. They just used him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was thinking that. I was thinking there's no way they'd actually make well, him he out to himself, be a bad guy. He, he had ties to the white supremacy, but only through, from, from what I could read anyway, um, only through uh, talking to people at gun shows. He wasn't actually, didn't care about the race, um, the race thing at all, or the racism stuff in the Turner Diaries. It was literally just the guns. And that's what really radicalized him. Uh, and he used to tell people, read this book because, you know, they're coming for your guns. They're coming for your guns. And there's certain kind of coincidences, you know, the Cohen Act and the Brady Bill. It's not quite the same thing, of course, like, but when he saw the Brady Bill pass, like, you know, that, when he really hit the roof. And this is after the book came out, right? Uh, oh, yeah. The book was released in 78. Okay. Oh, lo- far. okay. So, yeah. So he interprets things happening around him in the, the light of what he's read in the book. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I have this idea, Ali, that like, I mean, the real explanation for why, you know, quote unquote, ordinary people go down these roads is, is not like, it, it doesn't require anything profound to happen to them sometimes. I mean, he took it further than, than most and he, he did absolutely terrible things. But like, we all, I mean, this is a podcast about why people believe weird things. We all believe weird things if, you examine, if we examine ourselves long enough and truthfully enough. And I mean... You, you take a guy who's just kind of bored and doesn't seem to have a purpose in life. He's a college dropout. He's mm-hmm. a, he, he trained to be in the army, but then he never... Uh, no, no. so McVeigh like, never went to... He got a scholarship, yeah? And he decided it wasn't for him. Uh, and he decided he wanted to join the military. And he had a quite successful like, career. Um, he was selected for special forces training, but he washed out. Because he decided the special forces uh, recruiter, when they when they brought him in from um, the base after their return from the Gulf War, in he knew in inside himself, I won't pass this because he was physically uh, and mentally drained from the Gulf War. He wasn't quite fit, and he, he knew see it. Combat, he didn't want to. Sorry. Did he see combat? Oh yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like yeah, he d- actually ground? describes. Yeah. He, descri- he, used to, he was driving the tank, actually. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the tank he drew. Uh, he drove, but uh, yeah, he drove the tank, and, uh, the, the, trank, the tank. Uh, and he also shot an Iraqi. And, and from the reports, he said, like, the head just exploded. And all he saw was a red mist. And even though he'd been shooting things for years, he never shot, huh. like, anybody until that time. And I think that's what started... I think there was a bit of PTSD that kind of led him down, you know. Do we, like, is there evidence that 
because like this is a guy who loved guns and was obsessed with guns like it is he on record as saying that like actually when he killed somebody it, it disturbed him or it, it troubled uh, him i was reading this book called american terrorist by um uh, dan uh, helbeck and lou uh, michael or michael i don't know how you pronounce it there's no way there's no way in there right oh hey michael michelle <laughs> michelle lou michelle um and they're describing, so like Helbeck had done loads of loads of like hours and hours of interviews. Um, and when he showed the book to McVeigh at the end, uh, McVeigh read it and he went, look, look, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty decent account of everything I told you. And so by, I suppose, his own account, of course, we're getting it secondhand from a writer. Um, when he blew that guy's head off, I think he killed two of them. And all he saw was red mist. It stayed with him for a while. And I think it made him quite angry, you know. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it weighed in his mind even more. His two accomplices, I don't think, ever saw, um, they never saw combat. Uh, there was Michael Frontier and um, your man, oh, Nichols. What was the bloody name? It's gone right out of my head. I was going to take this in a direction. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, this is, there is this idea that you have this generation of underutilized people or people who are just bored or feel like they don't have a purpose and they're all wound up and, and, you know, expecting something from life. And, you know, in that generation, it's the equivalent of, you know, going off to the military, which, which can really sort some people out. You know, some people I've read a lot of books about people who, you know, felt they didn't have a place in the world and, you know, something like being part of something like the military can work for you and can give you a direction or a purpose or at least a bit of discipline in your life for, you know, I think that's it. what he was wanting. He was he was he wanted to do something with guns. His granddad taught him to shoot guns at a very young age, like it wasn't six or seven or anything. But he also told him how to hold the rifle as well. He just taught him a bunch of stuff. Um, and just McVeigh would, would become obsessed with guns, and he thought, well, I'm a pretty good shooter. He was. He was like one of the top smart, top marksmen in his unit. Uh, and he described like that they shot. He shot that. Um, uh, the Iraqi. The, the Iraqi uh, from about a mile away, they reckon, you know, wow. he just made that shot. So he, was he was good. He was an excellent sniper. He was, yeah. He was a sniper. So was yeah, a mile away, he'd want yeah. to be. Right. Okay. I was just going to say like a gun is more than a gun in, in, in the US. I, I know we're saying we're being a bit casual. It's almost like a religion life. really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't want it to sound like we're on our high horse looking down and saying, oh, these idiots with their, with their gun fixation. It's more. It's far more complicated than that, and it means a lot more than it is. And it's it's a symbol of to them. It's it's freedom and independence and all sorts of other things. So it's it's a, it's more than just what it is. Well, it's about. I think I I came across Lexington uh, twice in that book about when like the British soldiers came into the town in Lexington, Virginia, uh, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and. This they were trying to remove for... the guns. They were, they were trying to take the guns away from oh. the uh, from the Americans to try and reduce, um, uh, you know, any uprising rebellion. And those people decided to stand their ground. And it all comes from that. Well, right. I certainly McVeigh believes so. <laughs> so what else? What else do we know about like kind of the the, the his life before? before uh, what the before the army? Yeah. Before, yeah for example, yeah. I mean, it was pretty unremarkable. He was a very smart guy, but he just didn't really want to apply himself in school. He, just, he thought it was really boring. Um, he grew up in a, well, I guess, what was a normal American families back then. The parents got divorced to try to make it work. Uh, didn't work. He didn't really have a relationship with his mother 
after uh, she left. He lived with his dad. Um, and that was it. A series of friendships, one or two girlfriends and all that. He didn't say, like, because of the family breakdown, people always attributed, like, his kind of, um, I don't know, his descent into the thinking he had uh, by the end from being from a broken home. But he maintained that right to the very end, actually, when he was uh, uh, sent to uh, the last prison before the execution. It wasn't the family. He said, I had a pretty unremarkable... He, he himself said, I had a pretty unremarkable childhood. Like, you know, didn't have much of a relationship with my mother, but that didn't really affect me either way, you know? Mm. I mean, I think it- he was a teenager by the time they broke up. Uh, but it affected his sisters, from what I'd read, uh, but not not him. And then he kind of... He did a couple of odd jobs. Uh, he was security, actually, because he thought, well, I'll do that uh, because, I, you know, I get to hold a gun. And then after that... He just thought college was too boring for him. He got a scholarship and he was quite good with computers. Um, and then he decided, no, I'm going to go to the army. And he liked it there. He made a lot of friends. Uh, his, he called them his battle buddies. And the battle buddies were, well, they were whatever race, they, you know, they were all races, sure. You know, they were white and they were black, which, and he was, he, he was actual friends with them, not like he didn't have a problem with them. Earlier on in the book, I thought it was going to take um, a bit of a weird turn when um trigger warning here by the way and not my own view um <laughs> he is when he's 18 he's a security uh, a security van guy and he's going around with another driver and this guy's been in a bit long in the tooth he's been in the job for a while you know two days from retirement kind of guy and they drove through a um a predominantly black neighborhood and the guy calls him and McVeigh had now heard this before, and he went, what? Why did you call him that? And he said, oh, but yeah, because they just sit there um, waiting for the welfare check all month. And then McVeigh starts thinking the same way. And I thought, oh, that's it, Turner Diaries. Yeah. Uh, because he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, here we are inhaling gas fumes, and they're just waiting for their check. But he seems to just absorb himself of that thinking, especially when he goes into the army, because he had one fight in the army, with another soldier and that soldier was black but it was over nothing it's just a quarrel so um, if, if if anyone is looking into his life for like a, one concrete example of you know he felt wronged by you know different kinds of people or, or people of a particular race you're not going to find it you're, the answer is not there no and, no no the answer was the answer was firmly waco he was really he was really kind of rocked by ruby ridge and his dad said like when he saw ruby ridge on the television he just used to shout and shout, um, uh, you know, about the government, and he hated them. Wow! And then when so that, happened, that that was ninety two, wasn't it? It was. I've got it here. I, I think, think it was, it was the year right. Ninety two. Yeah, it was ninety two. Yeah, and then Waco was the year after. Ninety three. Yeah. So yeah. that I mean that gives us a timeline as to like how far he'd gone by what particular time. There is this. There's this phenomenon that happens with with you know hardcore racists who you get this thing that happens where they might have individual friends who are of these particular races who are, or in their past, they might've had perfectly ordinary relationships with these people. And they kind of make these exceptions in their heads and they say, Oh yeah, no, just cause I'm friends with him. That doesn't mean that like they, they can be friendly with some particular person, but they could still be against that group of people in the abstract, you know, like, Oh, I know that guy. He's my friend. He's Jewish. That's fine. Oh, but the Jews quote unquote yeah, yeah, yeah. are, are yeah, still yeah. this like, scary shady you know group who are always in the shadows who are doing everything bad it's not uncommon no 
and it wasn't it wasn't because anything racism like... fundamentally isn't logical so like it's not like no. these people are basing their their worldview on something that really happens it's an interpretation of what's happening and, yeah and it wasn't that'll... like for, for, for that turn like for him i think what really radicalized him for the turn diaries outside of guns was what in the turn diaries they described like the moderate conservative so like in the turner diaries they've got no time for anyone from any other race but they also don't have any time for anyone who's out to make a buck over standing up for the whole country and um, so you're gonna have the white you know in the book it's like oh the white guy who's just looking to sell his guns rather than hoard them for protection against the federal government all right and he was really against that you know yeah and he was he said it a, a few times to people he met uh, and i think his friend uh michael frontier said it to him as well did that particular frontier. Act... It sounds very French. Frontier. frontier. <laughs> um, Why were people selling guns to the government? Was that a thing? Was that because of the act? No, no, they weren't selling it to the government. They were selling just selling guns to you know well, whoever. That's... You know, you know who did that? To, uh, Weaver, Randy Weaver, sold guns to people when he needed money. Uh, yeah, yeah, but he was uh, he he was um, also uh, kind of a survivalist and a, a hoarder, wasn't he? You know, he yeah, he kept was. A bunch yeah, of he guns still hated the government. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, but so the, he wasn't. Like I think what McVeigh really didn't like was people who weren't, I suppose, kind of survivalists like him. That's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't have a deep hatred for the federal government. They were like, yeah, look, we think the federal government are a bunch of bastards. Um, at Waco, we still don't know, um, you know, if evidence went missing or not. And that's still going on today. Like, you know, Waco, the big lie is a documentary that's like oh, examines the yeah, other side I've of it. it. Yeah. Um, and, but they would be like, yeah, but like, I'm not really going to do much about it. Like he hated the federal government so much. He wanted to make a point, but these people, his, his friend actually who helped him with the bomb, uh, bomb making, but didn't want to get too much into it said, I'm not going to pick up a gun until there's a UN tank in my back garden. And he was like, this bullshit. So he's, he's a pretty weak sauce contrib contribution to this movement. This, this guy is, that's what he, he would be the last yeah. one to, to get on board. Uh, yeah. You know, when the when when the storm comes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and McVeigh firmly thought, like, no, they're going to take all our guns away. And um, if we if we allow the federal government to remain unchecked, then Waco will happen again, where they think like skullduggery and douchebaggery ensued with, with like evidence going missing. And uh, I think there was like gas, the CS gas that really tore him up actually, yeah. because in, in his military training, he had to take CS gas and say his name and social security number. And he didn't like, he, obviously he was like, what the hell? Uh, I think it was part of their training back then. Um, Sorry, what's the so connection they, between getting gassed like for training and having to say his number? So, so from what I read in the book, like um, he had to wear a gas mask yeah. go into this room as part of the training. I think it's probably, it's, it's to try and give them uh, an advantage in case they get CS gas while at war. Yeah. So at least they, they know what it's it. like or how, how it affects them. Exactly. Or... So he had the gas mask on, they throw in the CS gas. He has to take his mask off and say his name and his social security number. Um, okay. So it's to check your mental functioning after you've been gassed, is it? And to see how you can operate with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I was wondering I if it was like some pretty, kind of, pretty... uh, some kind of like, uh, you know, in, in, they're investigating your, your private information or something, <laughs> which is obviously something no, else. The army already knew that. Yeah, yeah I, the army I, I would presume so. I think they needed to pay you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I um, seem to recall, Ali, that if you watch videos of Waco when it was still happening, uh, like news news footage from that time, yeah. Timothy McVeigh shows up. Yeah, he does. Yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah. He's, he, he, he showed up for a while. Um, I think it was, was there for there was a huge too. band of, of people supporting the Branch Davidians outside right. the boundaries of the compound during the siege. Basically, you know, super quote unquote patriots and, and militia types. And he drove his car there to just to be there and see it. And yeah, was he, he was selling, handing out bumper stickers. He was selling bumper stickers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was actually the journalist interviewed him there at Waco for a college. It was just someone who was learning to be a journalist at like university at college. And um, uh, she just asked me, hey, look, why are you here? What are you doing? Uh, what do you think about the federal government? Um, and then it was published in the newspaper and she testified at his trial. Wow. After. I mean, he was a nobody at the time. He was just yeah. John Q. Public. Yeah, yeah. John Q. Hates yeah, they brought her public. back and they were like, oh, did you write this uh, article about him? And she's like, yes. And she's like, oh, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I doubt she had that much to add, but... No, yeah, sure, she's written it all down. Yeah. I guess they probably asked her in case there was something that she hadn't added because she was still learning at the time and probably wouldn't have, you know, had like tape recorders, whatever she had, you know, used to write down the interview. So do we know, did he have, uh, was he aware of the work of people like the Order or, I mean, that was earlier, that was in the 80s, but did he admire them or did he express any knowledge of, or interest of like the overall kind of white supremacist movement? Not really. For, like, like I said, um, he had known the white supremacists only through the gun shows. He didn't really share their views, you know, uh, at all. Uh, like it was kind of almost a passing racism with thinking like, er, like earlier on in his life, like four or five years previous when that um, his security guard mentor called him like a whole bunch of porch monkeys for a while. He was like, yeah, it's bullshit. Like, but he didn't, he didn't have the same kind of extreme element to him. Like, you know, the, the Elohim city or the Aryan nations or national lines had like, he was look, I'm here for the guns. Like, you know, <laughs> so he was more fueled by the anti-federal thing than anything else. Yeah, I mean, there could have been some passing, you know, he could have had, said something um, kind of racist in passing to someone else, but it wasn't, it wasn't worth documenting, at least from what I've read of it so far anyway. Like, yeah. I wonder if he was more like Randy Weaver in that, I, like, I don't believe Randy Weaver was a, was a racist from reading what I've read, but he was hanging out with them and working with them and like he shared his he shared his anti-government views with groups like the Aryan Nations and like their racism wasn't a big deal to him. He's gone on record like before all the trouble started yeah. as saying that he, he wasn't particularly he didn't really like it and he wasn't into it. And I mean, who else was he going to talk to out there in the wilds of Idaho? They were his only neighbors like a couple of miles away. So. I think it was just this sort of practical, he put up with it because it was there. Having said that, like, if you're going to these, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to feel like I'm ragging on like gun owners, but like from what I've read, I've got a book here called Deep South by Paul Thoreau, where he travels around the, um, the Southern states in about 2012 or 13. And okay. he goes to a lot of gun shows and like that conspiracy culture, you know, is rife within that world. And before conspiracy, conspiracy culture became very mainstream and kind of blew up on the internet, places like that were, that's where it was growing. Well, I guess there's two, maybe there's two kind of minds with people like Randy Weaver, yeah? You've got people like, so this Elohim City or whatever the hell it's called. It's Elohim, I think it's the name of it. It's, it's near Oklahoma anyway. It's compound, uh, like I think I was saying it earlier on, um, where just a bunch of white people are. They're Christian 
super Christian right wing. Is it, is it Christian They're identity? Not, Did they call them Christian identity? That? That's, That's it. Okay, so identity. that is absolutely the modern incarnation of British Israelis. So they're they're off the charts, stranger. <laughs> Well, they, they they don't see the, they said like we don't allow the words like white supremacist in here because the, I think they're trying to advocate for a different thinking of it like a racialist as it were where they just yeah. want to preserve their race rather than thinking that they're better than someone else. I don't personally I think it's nonsense like but well, that's what, that, you know that's... there's probably it's white white supremacist kind of activists are you know probably more yeah they they would be like oh no we don't we don't go out and give you know black people any trouble we just sit here in our own place and don't want them coming in you know they're they're free to go and have their own blacks only city somewhere else we don't care we just well, want to be they're, here they're not like um they're not like someone like luther uh sorry um uh pierce william pierce william pierce yeah. no yeah so they're not advocating well, he, he was like in in his in his writings in the turner diaries like it is literally i think it's just what he would like on paper but like they the organization are murdering white people for being race traitors for interrace interracial mixing and they just want white faces and they manage to seed california and kill or kick out all the black people and jewish jewish people so it's, there's a lot of anger there but i think these people in uh elohim city that's it but uh, uh elohim city uh, they they well they put themselves out there that they're not like that they're just you know they keep themselves to themselves and did you come across the notion of the, the white redoubt in your reading, which is the idea that, you know, if, if some of these groups that are bigger and more, more forward, if they got what they wanted, they would take, like, create a new state in the Pacific Northwest that would be, you know, Northern California up to Oregon and Washington State, and then some of Idaho and some of Wyoming, and that they would seed from the Union and be their own white ethno state. And the reason, of course, they chose that part of the country is, demographically, it is mostly white, which is you know, partly an accident of history because, you know, they were just the later parts to be colonized um, and there, weren't, there wasn't any slavery there. But oh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be quoted on this, but I have a feeling I read somewhere that like Oregon was granted statehood in according to some sort of legislature or some sort of idea, political idea that it would be largely white, at least for a period of time early in its history. But basically, one from, you know, through accident or not, that part of the country they would see as being the whitest. No, yeah, well, I mean, that's the part of the country they seed in the Turner Diaries. Oh, well, there, the yeah, that's not, that's not a... What do you mean by seed? Do you mean they're, they're actively trying to breed certain Not kinds seed. Of, What's the word I'm uh, looking for? Oh, they, 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 they control it and they, they, they control it. That's they right. They see from, it. right. They see from the government. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not an accident. So what, let's get back to McVeigh. What, when does he get serious? Like when, when does he start making plans and start thinking he's going to do something concrete? Uh, it, it's after, um, uh, it's after Waco. Yeah. Those, those two years after Waco happened to Oklahoma city, uh, really it's 1994 where he thinks like, I got to make a point. I got, I, you know, I got to really make a point. The federal government, like he'd been just um, locked in conversations with, with a few people about the New World Order um, and the federal government being evil and, you know, they don't work for you. How can someone 2,000 miles away just, um, you know, justify or create an order that I have to follow down here in a different state? Like, you know, it's, it's total ass. So he decides like, well, it's time to make, it's, it's time to make a point. You know, the ATF need to, need to, 
suffer really That's after the Waco. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Alcohol, Firearms, tobacco and who were firearms. largely responsible for escalating things at Waco. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he decided, right, I'm going to have to um, send a message and there has to be a body count. He did originally think, I'm going to do it at night because I don't want, I want as little casualties as possible. But then he thought, no, because the big federal budget don't like they don't care about blown up blown up buildings they just rebuild them yeah, with their they've got money blood. that doesn't that doesn't matter no so he 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 decided like it has to be unfortunately a body count now he said uh, later on in, in prison interviews he didn't know there was a daycare center there there was a daycare center on like the second or third floor um and about 19 children died let's, let's give a quick so he, he zeroed in on this one building yeah, because there was a few federal departments in there. Right. Yeah. So he but saw it, that as a legitimate target. Like, to him, that's like a military target because it's federal. Therefore, it's... it's. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. The, I think there was about two or three other federal... There was definitely... Uh, there was at least two in there. There was the ATF um, and there was maybe three or four others. Um, this is a huge building, isn't it? It's a big building. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he decided... Like, he was ready to like drive the thing into the building if he needed to and then jump out and was shoot this, it. Ali, was this his first plan, his first target, his first... Had he, had he had other ideas that didn't happen or...? He had thought about other buildings, but they had scoped out the Murrah building, uh, him and um, Michael Frontier, uh, both scoped out the building together. Uh, and they, you know, they decided that was the best one because of all the federal departments in there. Did he yeah. take his plan partly from something that happens in the Turner Diaries? Mm. I seem to remember. Yes. Um, so in the Turner Diaries, um, they, they're told by the organization, Earl Turner is like a low-level guy who's just fixing radio equipment. And he, he, he kind of rises up in, in the ranks of the organization. And one of his assignments is they have to blow up the FBI building. And they're going to use a truck to do it. And so they pack it with ammonium nitrate about 5,000 pounds of it. It's almost described onto a T of what uh, McVeigh used. McVeigh used, I think, topped it up with a thing called ANFO, which is uh, ammonium nitrate, which is kind of wetted with fuel oil. Um, so it's supposed to make the explosion bigger. Uh, and it, it, they describe that uh, in, in quite good detail. I always got uh, the, the impression that he wanted the, the Turner Diaries to be something like a blueprint, like not just something that would inspire people like emotionally or politically, but you know, yeah. practically, this is how you could do it. <laughs> well, do you know what, right? William Pierce wrote another novel in 1989, yeah, nine years after the Turner Diaries, called Hunter. And Hunter um, is about, uh, the, like, the, well, I suppose the antagonist. They're both antagonists, not part of yeah. um, <laughs> They're antagonists to us, but to him. The protagonist, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the heroes. Um, so in this, Jaeger goes around killing uh, people who have kind of racially mixed or whatever, and they decide, well, I'm going to blow up a building. So what do they fucking do? Another truck described with ammonium nitrate, you know, as, as the explosive delivery. Same writer in two different novels uses the same method of uh, detonating an explosive device at a federal building. That is unbelievable. By the way, he dedicated that book to a serial killer, Hunter, uh, William Pierce. What year was the second book? Sorry, you mentioned. Uh, 1989. Okay, so so um, just a few years before the actual opening after. of the city. 
Oh yeah, just a few years before. Yeah, yeah sorry, before I thought Oklahoma. It, yeah, after, okay. uh, yeah, it was it was after Turner Horizon before Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, so the other two guys, how did he? How did McVeigh get in touch with them? And like, were they? So we know that one of them, at least, his heart wasn't quite in it as much as McVeigh. The, the, the two of them weren't in the end. Like it was only it was only McVeigh who delivered it in his own. Um, Michael Frontier was like, ah, I can't really be doing this. Like apparently he he like he and Nichols kind of did it under duress because like they they got shouted at so much by, by McVeigh they were kind of scared of him I suppose you know and um, mm. Nichols started carrying a weapon when he went to see him because he was just scared that you know this wow. guy might flip if I don't do what he says were these guys um, like how did they get mixed up with him if they weren't that into it were they, they just... were in the army they were in the army and they believed all the they, they were totally anti, anti-federal government until it came to the point like he was willing to take his belief to the line and they weren't yeah they were like maybe you should just not do the bomb <laughs> and he was like nope maybe they were just you know, people talk about like larping a lot when, when it comes to militia types you know which is like you know i enjoy believing that there's this like battle between good and evil going on and i enjoy getting dressed up in my camo and going out into the forest and you know learning how to train with everybody but if it came to it, actually, in my heart of hearts, I know it's BS. Yeah, and they they they, they knew it was BS. I mean, Nichols jumped straight out because, um, they, I mean, Nichols and Frontier both have families, like, you know. Ali, that's uh, huge. That's a huge difference. Like, McVeigh is a guy with nothing to lose. Exactly. He's a failure. He by... with them for years. Actually, their their relationship went through a lot of different, um, um. Uh, you, you know, kind of ups and downs with both Frontier and yeah, Nichols because he would just spend time living kind of a, around the place, you know, he didn't have his own flat didn't have any money for that, he was just kind of living off them and they were getting a bit annoyed at his freeloading but at the same time they got on with him and the, the whole army thing I suppose kept him tight, you know yeah, so, so you've got two guys who you know, have something going for them if you want to look at it that way, they have, they have some stake in the world and the system they're in whereas McVeigh has got nothing, he's you know, he, he built, he, his whole sense of identity is based on the army and that didn't work out for him. So he's got nothing else to hold on to. So he, he adopts this new identity of the, the crusade against the government and there's nothing to stop him from actually acting on it. Unlike those two guys. Nope. Frontier got, uh, like, like Nichols is still in prison today. If he's not dead. Um, they tried to, I think, resentence him to get the death penalty. He got 161 years, uh, 161 life terms or something like that uh, in prison. Anyway, he's still there today. And Let's talk about the timing. McVeigh wanted this to happen on a specific date, didn't he? Yeah, so he wanted it to happen on, uh, I think, April 19th, Waco. Waco, yeah, the anniversary of Waco. That siege ended on April 19th, 1993. It, yeah, so it's the same day, the exact same day. It's the anniversary of Waco, two years. Wow. Deliberate. Yeah. Um. He used a bunch of aliases to get his stuff together, but I think they, he used his real name. The reason they, they, they got him in the end is because in like a dreamland motel, he used his real name. Um, I think it's because he was flirting with the woman behind the, like, who was there at the time and then just gave his real name. But he was using different aliases beforehand, like Tom Tuttle and Darren Bridges. And actually he used an alias called uh, Robert D. Kling. And he, they actually explained that alias, which I thought was pretty interesting, right? I'll read the excerpt that booked because uh, there's no point in paraphrasing. I'll just read it out, right? So McVeigh had selected the alias because he had known a soldier by the name of Kling with whom he had shared physical characteristics. Characteristics. He also liked the name because it reminded him of the Klingon warriors of Star Trek. He was a massive Trekkie, by the way, yeah? No way, I didn't know that. 
huge trackie. Yeah. Whoa. Even Laurie had joked about the reference. Uh, that was Michael Frontier's wife. And McVeigh knew it. Uh, it would make the name easy to remember. It fit you perfect. Even the address he chose, 428 Maple Drive, Redfield, South Dakota, had been carefully selected. He picked an ordinary name for the street, but he went to a map just to find the right town. Um, the birthday McVeigh assigned Robert Kling, April 19th, 1972, matched uh, the month and the day that Waco went down in flames. Wow. Uh, and when, so he thinks about, they explain this because at this point in the book, he has gone to the rider rental place to get the truck. Yeah. So this guy's not them, stupid, Ali. I mean, like a lot of other people we look into who go off the deep end. No, no, very intelligent. Yeah, yeah, yeah very intelligent. He's, he's, he had an IQ of 126. But he's competent as well. You know, it's not just... He, no, well, he'd been trained like with a military brain to think like, what's the, you know, to think about the situation, you know, how do I cause maximum damage, you know? Uh, and he kind of got it into his head, even though he'd gone from being sad when there was a bag of kittens drowned when he was a child. And he, that, that play, like played in his mind for a very long time. And the Iraqi soldier being killed in the Gulf War, that played in his mind for a long time. At the end of the book, you can kind of see his mentality. He just stops caring. He's like, well, you know, the casualties are casualties. Like, you know, I'm sorry about the kids. You know, if I'd known there was a daycare center there, I wouldn't have done it. But, you know, casualties of war and all that. And he's gone from being kind of really affected by death at the start and really not caring he's at the end of his young off. life. He's grown, yeah. He's, yeah. As, so, as a military person, the, has to sometimes. Well, he, here's, where, here's where I thought this is kind of interesting, right? So at the Ryder rental, rental Agreement place, the, where they explain the Robert D. Kling name, right? And they've given him April 19th, 1972, um, which is Waco. The timestamp and the computer-generated Ryder rental agreement, McVeigh noticed, was 4.19 p.m., the numbers, yeah, yeah. Um, Bit of numerology. He, he, thought that was, he, he thought that was an eerie fluke. Um, and he, he considered the numbers 4 and 19 seem to take on all kinds of meanings. Um, and when you added them up, it gives you 23. Remember that movie with Jim Carrey, the number 23? <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which was the date of his birthday in April. He'd given his alias, Robert Kling, a birth year of 1972, which when subtracted from 1905 oh. equals... 23. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have been well at home in QAnon with this kind of nonsense. I think if McVeigh was alive today, he would have voted for Trump. Oh, yeah. He seems to... <laughs> he seems smarter than your average Q. Like, Q people couldn't pull off something like he did. This, like, well, he it wasn't sounds like Christian he's... right, if that's what you're thinking. Like, he wasn't Christian right. He wasn't no, really he just wasn't, actually... That's, yeah, that's that what I mean. Right. He seems to... Yeah. Like what he did was awful and it was for d disastrous reasons, but he seems too competent. Yeah, he describes a bit in the book, actually, um, in the American Terrorist book, where he has to guard an abortion clinic and people were outside protesting. And he was a bit conflicted because he was like, well, I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I'm also pro-freedom of speech. So he was just caught there between everything he believed in. You know? He was pro-choice. Yeah, he's poor choice. Yeah, he so he wasn't, he wasn't at, all, at all like Christian right. No. He wasn't influenced by that at all. No. That's, it's really interesting because like these various movements are kind of synonymous now, whereas back then they weren't yeah. necessarily. That's really interesting. Well, I guess they, they would have been, but that's why he, whenever someone tries to stick McVeigh to white supremacy, yeah. it, it's just because he's white. He, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't really work. It wasn't one of his motivations. No, if we Although, believe Dan Helbig 
writing and like believe that you know where he you literally he heard it from the horse's mouth and now he's telling us he didn't care but he believed in the turner diaries he believed in the turner diaries for gun control he didn't care about the racist oh, the racist stuff okay this is why i think it's so important yes. to differentiate between two right yes um the Pierce dedicated the other novel, Hunter, to a guy called um, Joe Franklin, who was a serial killer in America in the 70s and 80s. And that guy went around killing people based on uh, race and if they were white traitors. Yeah. And Pierce said, well, he was doing his duty as a white man. Yeah. Guy was evil and Franklin was evil. But um, for McVeigh, it was just the gun stuff. It literally was just the gun stuff and the New World Order and the federal, fighting the federal government. Like the system, it's called the system in the Turner Diaries. Um, and McVeigh fully, fully believed, maybe in his own head, that he was a part of the organization fighting this system and the New World Order, you know? He was a he single issue was, voter, Ali. <laughs> I, I, think he, I think he was, yeah. Well, maybe I, I double issue. Your yeah, racism federal, as long as into the guns. And guns. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's that's astonishing. It's just yeah. But how, various... how about that for the numbers? The number twenty-three uh, uh, and the four nineteen p.m. is is, right, is, so, is it real? I don't know. I don't. So know. what happened next? After after he gets the the truck, then he goes and uh, prepares the bomb. He gets really angry with the lads because they don't show up to help him. Uh, he pulls one guy away from Easter Sunday dinner. Uh, uh, I think it's Michael Frontier. Frontier. Um, what he comes up to the house like ding dong. No, no, oh. he rings him up and he's like, "You better get your ass down here." Like, yeah. This is for keeps. It's Easter Sunday, like they're having their meal. And he's like, nope, <laughs> you've got to come help me. <laughs> you've got to help me blow up buildings. Oh, my days. But they, 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 pack, they pack the um, the truck with explosives almost exactly like it is described in the Turner Diaries. Wow. Yeah. It's chilling. It's chilling to read it. And I, I only found out today when I was doing my last minute reading, trying to remember all the shit in my brain, <laughs> that Hunter has the exact same bomb being built, you know, in 78, in 89, and in 95, it's actually used. Pier- and Pierce really house, meant something by that. Yeah, yeah. And I bet Pierce was fucking dancing with joy when he saw it happen. Yeah, is, because is, it, was, yeah. it was his novel realized. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think he, I think he, tried, to, he tried to defend it like, oh, like, like, you know, if someone does something with the, you know, oh, no, actually, it was a different novel. It was called Unintended Consequences that McVeigh read in prison. And McVeigh said, if, uh, if the Turner Diaries was my Bible, then Unintended Consequences was my New Testament. It's a better book. And if I had read that, I would probably have done that. And when he was in Unintended Consequences, the, um, they reference Waco and Ruby Ridge. And the person goes on a, I suppose, killing spree against federal employees. He assassinates a judge and all this. And McVeigh was really hung up on Lon Horiuchi, the sniper that killed Sandy, was it Sandy Weaver? Randy Weaver's son? Uh, oh goodness, I don't remember his name, but yeah, he was shot. Him and the dog were shot by... Right, by Horiuchi. Right, right, yes. And it, it's it, it, like there was a burning anger from McVeigh because of that. And he said that if he'd read Unintended Consequences first, it, it was published post-Waco, it was published in 96, um, that he would have probably done that instead. And he thought it was a better book. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So he has the truck loaded, ready to go. Yeah, so he, he, he's parked it. He drives into Oklahoma, right? The, the truck is very heavy. 
it's, it's filled with thousands of pounds of ammonium nitrate. I think he's parked a getaway car somewhere and it's got no license plate on it. And that's why he was caught. Oh, it was parked by the YMCA um, in Oklahoma City. And that's what did him in eventually. Maybe not 30 minutes after the bombing, he gets caught for having no license plate. What was he doing or where was it? Why was he not like miles away 30 minutes on? He was driving while, while we got caught. Like, oh, so he so was, he, he, was he, making he, a getaway. He parks in front of the Murrah building, right? He's gotten, he, he's gotten his failsafe in the truck and his third failsafe is I'll shoot the truck and die because, you know, I'm not, he wasn't suicidal, but also his life, he thought was worth, um, he was worth giving. So uh, like he had, a, he had a pretty good plan for getting away. He expected to get away, but if that he expected, failed. But he didn't, expect, he didn't expect to stay on the run forever. He did expect that he would pay with his life somehow and he did expect he would get caught at some stage. Right. Um, but he, while he was driving away, so the book says he was thinking about like, well, will I do any more bombings? Will I not? And then he gets caught. Like, um, so he parks in front of the Murrah building. He gets out and he, he's walking away from the building, uh, obviously. <laughs> um, and he, they showed the map of how he got to the YMCA. We're, we're on a podcast here. It doesn't really matter. He walks to the YMCA. But he's, it's a hard thing to do over the medium of podcasting is, is talking about maps. <laughs> he's descri- he, then he turned left and then he turned... <laughs> um, he, he, he sticks uh, the earplugs in, yeah, uh, because it's going to be quite loud. And anyway, so the reason I thought the directions were important is because he did zigzag away from the building a little bit in his directions to get to the YMCA. You know, there was buildings as a buffer towards him. And when the explosion happens at 9.02 a.m. on April 19th, um, he describes that he was lifted an inch off the ground by the force of the blast, even with all wow. those buildings as a buffer. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there was a house um, which had, uh, I think, one of the lawyers or uh, one of the, um, well, the doctor who interviewed McVeigh, the, the psychiatrist, he lived a mile away from the bombing. His window just blew, blew in from it. It's like, an incredible blast to watch. Something like, is it a third or a half of the building just disintegrates almost yeah right? yeah it's yeah. astonishing they they the, the book describes it that it was um three quarters the size of the hiroshima bomb in terms of physical size like, of blast I, area i suppose yeah 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 i don't know if that's really true or not because hiroshima that sounds kind of unlikely place. just given what what we know about nukes but <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe like the central core blast or something i don't know maybe anyway. maybe he's literally just talking about the size of it like the actual size of it yeah okay maybe i don't i, I don't know that's um but anyway he's lifted off his feet by the ymca and gets into the car and he drives away um and i i think in a car like, with no number listen- plate he has, he has no license plate in the back yet. And he's, uh, he's actually picked up, he's stopped by a Jobsworth who loves pe- stopping people for no license plates. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the guy says, um, okay, you got no license plate. And he went, oh, uh, and he was like, where's the insurance? I'm like, oh, sorry, I don't have insurance either. <laughs> okay. Um, Hang on, and it was a rent- he, notices, he, he notices a bulge. <laughs> but oh, it's no, just sorry, a gun, this don't is worry. not the van this is another car sorry obviously this is another car this is another car, <laughs> car yeah yeah so he's driving away he stopped he stopped by the um the, the, the state trooper up to this point he was ready to kill um police in uh, if, if he needed to, to get his immediate uh, yeah. objective so while he's driving through oklahoma a police car is following behind his van this is before the bombing and he think he's getting annoyed that they're following him and he has a glock 
on him and he thinks like well if they do stop me i'm going to i think i might shoot them because i need to complete this objective uh, but afterwards he doesn't do that when the state trooper comes up to him the state trooper is on his own uh, but he had a grudging respect or a respect for law enforcement just not federal law enforcement oh my so he god do that's such a it's, it's hair it's splitting only a fundamentalist would <laughs> <laughs> i know but anyway um like i said the uh, the state trooper notices a bulge but it's just a gun don't worry uh, <laughs> he wasn't happy to see the state trooper anyway um your man mcveigh just says very calmly i've got a gun so the state trooper reaches in, takes his gun out, and then he takes out his, his gun and says, get out of the car. So McVeigh stands out of the car, very calm. He's not, he's not sweating a bit, uh, if, I, if the book is to be believed. He takes the gun out, gets your man out of the car, McVeigh, and then says, right, he does the search. Uh, and he's trying to, I think, trying to just, you know, unload the gun, as it were. Uh, he, he's fiddling about the gun, and McVeigh says, my gun's loaded. And the state trooper says, so is mine. So he um, brings him in. And th- the hearing for McVeigh, because he was only caught in a technicality for not having a license plate. So he's supposed to be in front of the county judge um, the, like the next day. But it was moved to the Friday because the judge had scheduling conflict. And it was o- that, that was the only reason that they knew that he was in that jail and he was caught. Yeah, They didn't run a license plate check. And they didn't know him. Like at that time, McVeigh spent like two days in county jail before the ATF or the federal agents knew who he was or where he was. Yeah. Wow. Because while he was driving out of town, all the other cars are driving in. And there was a news chopper following um, the FBI chopper. And the book says, like, if they had looked on the ground, they would have seen one yellow, I don't know the name, whatever car it was, yellow car driving away from the city while everything was driving towards it. Yeah. Um, And then he got done over. He's in there for processing. Um, waiting to see the judge but if they'd seen the judge if he'd seen the judge on whatever the date was supposed to be he would have gone out in a minor minimum bail yeah the atf agents find out his name uh, because they they catch the van and they start tracing the van back uh, to where he rented it and i think he parked the van at the dreamland motel where he registered his real name yeah so he's given like uh, Daryl Bridges is a name with the rental company or um, sorry uh, Robert D. Kling or whatever it is and then they trace that back to Daryl Bridges and then they get him with McVeigh in Dreamland Motel and then they start ringing around I can't remember actually um, I did read the book I can't remember how they they find out he's ended up at um, this county jail I think it's another alias that he's used uh, but they told like the, the guy who arrested him, I think he was working at the time, like, hold him. You got to hold him. Like, you know, um, we need to speak to him. And then I suppose the rest is history. Isn't wow. it all history though? <laughs> it's an astonishing story. What, um, just thinking about like today and the state of this sort of paranoid conspiracy culture, like, does he, I don't know that young people today who are into this, you know, the, the current incarnations of this stuff, do they know about the Ruby Ridges and the, and the Wacos and the Timothy McVeigh? Like, what was the knock-on effects of his action? And did, was he hoping to spark, a, like, a kind of a civil war? Did he hope this would be the first act in something larger? I, I, I think he wanted to um, send them, like, send the ATF a message. Um, the, 
there was a specific quote that he had. He had like six Semper Tyrannus, like, you know, um, Death to Tyrants on, on his T-shirt. He was wearing that T-shirt. And then there was another quote in the back, like the, the tree of liberty must run around with the blood of uh, enemies or something. It was a very specific quote. Do people still so... talk about him, like in these quarters? Are, are the militia groups that... Because you've been, you've been lurking online with militia groups for the last year yeah, yeah, as, as we planned these episodes like do they reference stuff like this still or is this ancient history to them people still think that there was shenanigans at waco yeah in yeah. 2015 uh with the mcveigh case actually they reopened it because there was a second there was supposedly a second john doe so this is the conspiracy theories um uh around um uh, the mcveigh bombing they reckoned that there was another bomber and mcveigh said there was no other bomber his own defense attorney a guy called Stephen Jones insisted there had to be another bomber. He wouldn't believe it. This guy flew to Britain to talk to um, people there about like how IRA conduct their bombs. No he way. He flew. Yeah, yeah. He flew to the Philippines uh, the where lawyers. sorry, um, Terry Nichols had a, a wife from the Philippines, um, his a, a, a second wife, uh, and he I think he flew out there to try and see if he could find any other evidence there was another bomber with you know attached to Nichols and Frontier and. Um, uh, McVeigh, and he he's he just he absolutely believed you have to have had another accomplice. This and is McVeigh's McVay own lawyer doing this. McVeigh's own lawyer. McVeigh that McVeigh's lawyer was not not with him from the beginning. It was after the first few. Was weeks. Was he trying to first... prove this in court, or was this just a personal obsession he had? Personal obsession. So this he was nothing wanted... to do with like defending McVeigh. This was just. No, McVeigh wanted to go. McVeigh wanted to go like the necessity defense, like that. You know, this was necessary because eventually it wasn't like uh, an immediate threat, but a threat was still a threat. Like um, the analogy he used, um, I've got it here actually. Uh, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jones placated his uh, client by listening to his suggestion of a necessity defense, which, according to McVeigh. The attorney had one of his assistants uh, investigate the chances of mounting such an argument, um, which was obviously it didn't go anywhere in the end. But imminent to McVeigh didn't mean immediate. If a comet is hurtling towards the Earth and it's out past the orbit of Pluto, it's not an immediate <laughs> threat to Earth, but, but it is an imminent threat. <laughs> and if the US government was allowed to get away with what happened at Waco and Ruby Ridge, there was an imminent threat to the lives of gun owners, McVeigh said. I would have had no problem standing up a trial and admitting the bombing, saying this was a necessity. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, do you know that um, McVeigh was one of the runners-up for 1995 Man of the Year from Time Magazine? They they have some. They've made some questionable choices down through the years. It's it's designated for the person who has the biggest impact in the news, not yeah like, for good or bad. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, that that was the defense they um. Uh, they like they wanted to mount like the necessity defense that immediate wasn't imminent, but Jones totally believed they had to. They had, he had to. Did not, he did not act alone. Oh, and that's fascinating. McVeigh went one step further, going like the accomplices that you charged, Terry Nichols and Michael Frontier, they were acting under duress. You know, it was me. And I think he said something like, you know, what's terrifying is that one man could cause this much destruction. That's what terrifies you. Yeah. Wow. I think he wanted those words to maybe maybe. Uh, influence or impact on the next generation of um, the growing uh, spotlight of the American militia, which we see today, like the gravy seals now are out in massive numbers. They <laughs> used to be dark, such thirsty. 
<laughs> so many good names for them <laughs> so in coming around to a wrap-up ali like if we were to look into this again what kind of directions would you be interested in taking it in or what could be some future expansions on this topic given i suppose given what's happening things happen so quickly now i remember we spoke about a month ago and we were toying with the idea of talking about the boogaloo boys or something like that but everything these well, things the, the appear... conspiracy conspiracy theorists have stayed since then. Yeah, that's that's conspiracy, been a conspiracy at Ruby, conspiracy at Waco, conspiracy at um uh, at um, Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma. But that's a new you know, one for me. I had no idea. You know, I think what fucked the thing was right. With what I think what fucked McVeigh off, and what maybe gives a bit of like not truth, but uh, it puts kind of fuel in the engine of these conspiracy theorists is that the federal government did fuck up um, uh, Ruby Ridge. Like beforehand, they tried to get Weaver on entrapment charges, like on entrapment. They tried to entrap the guy to setting him son off shotguns so they could get the Aryan Nations. It was and then in Waco, questionable, I think, what they did with him. It was questionable, right. And then in Waco, um, uh, you know, maybe going with the force so strong like that uh, or... Yeah. maybe the uses of the CS gas like that, that was a shambles. Like 86 people shouldn't have died from like, you know, these, these people are supposed to be trained to the nth degree to be able to go in there and get the situation resolved. Not. And then you have the the weird video with the tank that looks like it might be setting the building on fire. And yeah, know, yeah. I'm not, that's, I'm not that's, saying that's, that's what happened, Waco, but that's in Waco, the big lie, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's, it's an uh, interesting video. There was um, also, do you know, uh, when McVeigh was in prison, uh, he met the Unabomber. No, Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski. No yeah. way. So Ted Kaczynski wrote a letter um, afterwards uh, discussing his you know, thoughts about McVeigh. And even he said, I think that bombing was a little bit out of order. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> said, I, I've, I've read the Unabomber. was unnecessary casualties. <laughs> oh my, I've read his... Um, his manifesto and like he was he was not of sound mind I'll put, I'll put it that way he actually got on with them um, uh, he got on with mcveigh everyone Although, got on you know what it was like a really popular guy at prison <laughs> also also a guy who was able to like he he set out what he wanted he did what he set out to do and he got away with it very successfully for years and years and years and found a way to to do it without getting caught for a very long time so and both smart guys in their own way you know i'm I'm used to reading about these these guys who can't yeah. get it together and are, are having all these kind of failures and these are two guys who you know achieved what they wanted to unfortunately there was uh, i'm gonna crack a can here by the way so ready ready podcast friday night well you'll be enjoying most of this one by yourself because we have to wrap up soon <laughs> this is a dab lovely just wanted to tell you that little bit of uh, information I, you know, I read today. Ted Krasinski, uh, yeah. he, he, he thought like too much casualties, mate. <laughs> He's uh, played by Paul, Paul Bettany in the TV show. It's totally, totally worth a look. It's, Never seen it. It's on Netflix. Yeah, the Unabombers. It's, it's very interesting. Even, even with McVeigh's execution, right? Um, there was people still lobbying against not executing him. They didn't want him executed. He's the first person to be executed by a federal government since '63. No yeah. way. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, like we, we've always known forever, like, look, there's capital punishment in America, but he's the first person to die by apparently. So, or have to, to have been sentenced to die, I think. by Not by an individual state, but by the 
but yeah, federal. by the federal government as well. Right. Yeah. Right. I might wrap things up there. So I'll say huge thanks to Ali for talking with us today and for doing all that research about really, really grim topics. We had a few laughs. Hopefully nothing appears uh, disrespectful. We're just doing our best to get through some fairly rough material. And obviously it's all bad stuff. We don't support any of it, but it is important. It is interesting. And I think it is relevant, unfortunately, with a lot of things that are still going on today. And Look, people are always going to want to understand why people believe weird things. That's why the show exists, but also why people do terrible things. Well, I think it's probably a, a good thing to point out that these American militia groups today are still talking about Waco and Ruby Ridge in Oklahoma. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're yeah. almost emboldened by this. That's why know? we've chosen these three particularly, because they are like these one, two, three foundational steps of something that is different slightly, but still going on today. So I'm Kian. This is Wide Atlantic Weird. As always, you can find us on Twitter to say hello, where we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Please uh, give us some reviews wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. That really helps a whole lot as well. Check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Wide Atlantic Weird. And yeah, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You would prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.